Welcome to the final seminar this afternoon off the Mind and Soul Zone and Mind and Soul Seminar stream. Um, it's been a busy few days, but it's actually a real privilege for me to actually welcome one of my fellow directors of Mind and Soul. Um, so far, we've been, with the seminars, we've actually had guest speakers who we've been bringing in uh, for their specialisms. But uh, originally, I would hope that both of our directors, or my fellow directors, would be here. One of them is in, based in Scotland and hasn't been able to come down. And he originally was going to be doing one seminar, and Will was going to be doing another. But uh, certainly, it's really great that one of my other directors is here. Um, if you haven't been to the Mind and Soul Zone, it's in the Premier Pavilion. You know the big marquee tent in the middle of the, the sort of ring outside. If you haven't been into it for the Mind and Soul Zone, what we've actually done is brought together a number of the Christian healing ministries working in healing, emotional health, mental health, all together into one bit. So if you actually go into that marquee, go through past the Premier Stand... Look beyond the bookshop and you'll see a complete row of us. There's nine stands all together. And I'd I recommend if you haven't been there already, that at the end of this seminar you go down and actually have a look. Because they're also very much complementary to each other, doing slightly different things in the Christian ministry world. And they're all agreeing to be part of what we've called the Mind and Soul Zone here. At this point I'm going to hand over to... Will, because I'm not quite sure how much he's actually planning to talk about, talk about mind and soul. And he's been involved in, in it a lot more than I have. So this is Will van der Hart, one of the directors, one of the founding directors of Mind and Soul. So let's give him a warm welcome. Great, thank you. Well, thanks very much, everyone. I always recommend you don't clap before uh, you hear me, actually, because you might not want to clap at the very end. Um, it's lovely to have you here. Well done for making the transition from being on the outside, thinking about coming to a seminar about worry, and actually being on the inside and being someone who's been able to recognise that you've come to a seminar about worry. Of course, I all know you've come here uh, to support a friend who you know at home is very worried. So you can all relax now, because I just think that you've all got a friend who you're compassionately caring for. It's, um, it's brilliant to have you here, and as Jonathan said, uh, Mind and Soul is a ministry that's grown uh, because we believe that Jesus cares about people who are struggling with their emotional and their mental health as much as we believe Jesus cares about the poor and Jesus cares about people who are afflicted physically. And um, often in our churches, our experience has been that we've had a very good and a very holistic approach to wellness in terms of our physical health, but maybe not such a healthy approach to wellness in terms of our emotional and our mental health. And uh, people always get slightly edgy when I start talking about mental health because they're sitting there thinking, yeah, this, I haven't got a mental health problem. Uh, and that's because mental health problems are stigmatised in our society and sadly still stigmatised in our churches. Uh, the reality of the fact that one in four people suffer from a mental or emotional health issue of a clinical level in their adult lifetime seems to be overlooked. And the reality is if you look into a church of 400 people, 100 people there will have seen their GP or hopefully will have seen their GP about a persistent emotional or mental health issue that they've been struggling with. That's the reality. Now, what's the problem? The problem is that some psychological healing models don't necessarily sit very comfortably with some of our Christian theology. And so there's been a disparity, but Mind and Soul is about bringing two good things together, understanding what good things there are uh, from the professional and clinical world, and understanding what good things, uh, what great theology there is about healing uh, for the mind and for the warrior. And that's what we're really all about today. I don't want to spend a long time introducing what we do. I just want to say that as a warrior, you're in good company. And uh, I'm here... Uh, primarily, I began my ministry uh, in, in mind and soul in this particular area when I experienced um, anxiety as a, as a real uh, of intense uh, experience of trauma. And I talked a bit about that with Robert Bond earlier on, and it came through an experience of being involved in the London bombings. But it's easy, isn't it, <clears throat> when we've had a tough experience to try and excuse ourselves from the stigma of having a mental health issue by saying, oh, it's because such and such happened. And it all sounds very worthy if I say, oh, I was pastoring in the Edgware Road during 7-7 and the trauma of it overwhelmed me and, and then, I really, you know, then I became very anxious. It's really easy for me to kind of uh, make a story quite kind of glorious and my suffering suddenly becomes uh, kind of a, you know, a heavy weight of the gospel I've had to carry because I'm serving Jesus and it's the cost. The reality is I was a warrior long before I ever had that uh, experience which exacerbated uh, my my. Uh, potential for uh, more intense worry and panic. 
Now, if you're here today, the likelihood is that you're here not because you occasionally have minor worries, everyone has those, but maybe because you've struggled for a long time with worry as a concept. Now, do you all remember those, um, those pencils you used to get in primary school? And they had different coloured leads in them. <coughs> you might remember those. You get them sometimes free in McDonald's for your children. And uh, you had, they had about ten leads in the pencil. And you've got like red and yellow and green and blue. And when you want to change colour, you just take one out the front and you stick it in the back and the next one comes through. Now, I think that's a great image of what it's like for us as worriers. I wonder if you can think about your worries like that. Think about a worry you've had today. You've got it in your mind. Now, were you worrying about the same worry yesterday? Some of you, yes. Okay, now go back a month and were you worrying about the same worry? Some of you were, but some of you weren't. Now, have you worried about anything else since? Yes, quite a few people have. Have you ever found that a lot of the worries that you've had, that you remember, actually never came true? Yeah, quite a lot of people. So what we often find is our brain is a bit like that pencil, and we worry about one thing because it's at the front for a while. Maybe we worry about it for a day, or we worry about it for a week, or we might even worry about it for a month. But then we actually stop worrying about it. And we take the pencil out the front and think, ah, I've resolved that, brilliant. Now I'm going to be peace and quiet forever. I'm so glad I've got over that worry. So you stick the lead back in the end of the pencil, but unfortunately something happens. Not are you free from worry anymore, but a new lead comes to the front. And suddenly there's a new priority of worry in your mind. Now, if you cycle through the worries, has anyone noticed how six months, maybe 12 months down the line, the same worry that you're worrying about six months or 12 months previously, seems to reappear. And some of you will think, you know what, I've worried about that before. The weird thing is, it seems equally strong now as it did when you were worrying about it before. So you're not able to just let go and stop worrying. It's easy to get hold of scripture and apply it strongly. And that's great, I'm a biblical expositor, I love the word of God. But I believe that the Word of God is living and active and has to be applied to our lives to see significant change. So I could say to you all, and maybe you've been to see your vicar or your pastor or your priest, and they've said, you don't know that in the Bible it says don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, bring your request to God. So you say, Lord, you know what? I'm so worried about this thing. I'm really, really worried about it, Lord. I'm just so worried about it. I'm not going to let you say anything to me. I'm just going to tell you about how worried I'm about this thing. And so your prayer is consumed by this worry about this thing. You say, Lord, I'm really worried that my prayers are just full of requests for me. I feel like I need to start worrying about the poor or the lost or the broken. And I'm I'm worrying that, actually, maybe, Lord, I'm not such a good Christian after all. And then that worry becomes the new lead in the pencil that becomes uh, the new exacerbator for worry. Have you noticed how, when you are stressed and tired, your worries seem to increase? Lots of people say, oh, it never rains, but it pours. It never rains, but it pours. What that means is, I'm in a tired period. I'm struggling and suffering. Therefore, my mind is much more sensitive to worries and anxieties. So it appears that a whole load of new anxieties have just arrived. But could it also be that because you're tired, stressed and anxious, you've got the propensity to worry more? So it appears that it's actually pouring, when actually it's only really raining. It's all about how we frame things in our mind. And I I often say with mental and emotional health issues that that for a long time as Christians we've been seeing the wood but we've not been seeing the trees. There's a fantastic passage in Isaiah about the the eagle that rises up and sees the whole of the desert. And the Lord's view, his ontological view is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, can see the oasis of feeding for the people. You know, when the Lord was guiding the Israelites through the desert, he knew where the manna was going to fall. He knew where the brackish water was that would be made pure. He knew where the rock was that would bring forth water. He didn't let the Israelites wander around in the desert without guidance. He could see it, but they couldn't. Sometimes as Christians, we're lost in the woods of worry, and we're trying to deal with the worries that come up, but we're unable to see that ontological, that God perspective on our worries. So we actually find ourselves working things out all the time without actually working things out. And it's a bit like being in a paper bag. You're constantly wrestling with it to try and get out. But because you're inside of it, you can't actually see where the exit is, and then you can step out and walk away. That constant sense of wrestling uh, is a real problem. I say this, it's, it, 
at no point do we truly view the world with objectivity, and that's how it really is. Instead, and you won't like this, we view the world subjectively. That's through our own damage, through our own memories, through our own beliefs. And those things found our, our worldview. And as, we're a, as, we, as we are discipled in Christ, our worldview becomes more like God's view. We begin to see things as they really are. But remember, St. Paul said, now I see in part, but then I shall see in full. Now I see like in a mirror, but then I shall see face to face. With worry, we're often seeing in part. Have you ever, I don't recommend watching horror movies for people who worry. I don't recommend watching horror movies anyway. But I'm told by friends that a, a reliable source tells me that, that a chiller is much more frightening than a horror movie. A thriller movie doesn't show you everything. It relies on your imagination to see the worst. But a horror movie presents everything to you. So actually, after a while, you're going, yeah, that's quite boring. And I think that mask might be rubbish. <laughs> and, and I think that, that blood might actually be tomato ketchup. With our worries, our minds do damage to ourselves because they're brilliant at coming out with the worst possible scenario for us to deal with. Think about the worry that you've been dealing with today. I bet you haven't been saying things to yourself like, hmm, yeah, that's not a very realistic perspective. I wonder if I can adopt a more rational view. I wonder if there's lots of different reasons why I'm thinking like that right now. Some of you may have been. That's called making new appraisals. But many of you might have been thinking, yeah, and if that happens, then maybe that will happen. And if that happens, then that will happen. And if that happens, then I'm going to die. Ultimately, our brains are brilliant at creating story. We're fantastic at embellishing and exacerbating the worst possible outcomes. Have you ever wondered why it doesn't work the other way around? Why we don't constantly think, yeah, and then it's going to be that wonderful and then it's going to be that brilliant. And then it's going to be that amazing. It's going to be fantastic. We always go the other way. We always moderate ourselves to negativity. Now, that's not because that's any more real. Actually, it's equally broken and equally misshapen. And, and the thing about worry is that sometimes worriers give themselves a little scout's badge of honour and say, oh yeah, I'm just a realist. I'm just a realist. You know, I like to prepare for the worst. The thing is, it's still a distortion. We're still seeing things in a broken image, and God doesn't want that for us. So, do you want to take a chair? Because you look like you might be rather uncomfortable there. Go on, Gilbert. You take that chair, please. I think. Let me help you up. Oh, oh, there we go. No, you're okay. Yeah, we might be related. You're Hart, and I'm Vanderhart. Sorry. Why, why don't you take? Why don't you take? You, know, you take my chair, though. You can, you can, do you want a chair as well? Are you okay? Good. Okay, that's fine. So, so we have to get this idea. You're not, you don't like this, do you? You don't like this idea that we're not seeing things as they really are. But it's a biblical precedent. We're not seeing things as they really are. We're not being realists. We're seeing things through our own distortion. And at some point, everyone, worri- everyone worries about an irrational fear. Um, remember when you're, you're at home on your own and your friends have gone out or you know, you're, 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 um, your husband's gone out, your wife's gone out, and you're, you're in your own home. Suddenly your ears tune in to all sorts of creaky noises that you've never heard before. Oh, what's that? Oh my goodness, someone's in the house and you get the golf club and you're wandering around and you're thinking, what's that noise? The thing is that that noise has always been there. It's because you've tuned into the noise. That's what makes it worrying. And then your brain begins to bring about catastrophic thoughts about what that noise is. You don't say, I wonder if the marshmallow man is sitting down on my sofa and he's brought me gifts and I'm going to go in and enjoy some marshmallows with him. We always think it's a burglar. He's after us. You know, something's gone wrong. Something's happened to us. And we're what we call threat sensitive. Now, I'd like to say that there are a group of people... and psychologists and psychiatrists probably share this opinion, well, they're what we call having an emotionally, an emotionally sensitive personality type. Now, you might know these people, because these people tend to be deeply empathetic, they tend to be very caring people, they share the pain of other people, they often cry when they're ministering to other people, they're sensitive people. When someone says a bad thing to them, they often feel very hurt. They're very good at encouraging other people. Now, they're emotionally sensitive. Now, there's another group of people, you might know them in the churches, that everything's like water off a duck's back. They'll say anything to you, make you feel awful for weeks, and they won't think they've done anything wrong. Uh, they're not emotionally sensitive. 
But there are an emotionally sensitive personality group who do have great gifts in terms of empathy and sympathy and understanding, and they're very intuitive. But the downside, if you like, the flip side of the calling or the way in which it can be corrupted is by being uh, excessively empathetic or by excessively concerned about the self or generating deep feelings of guilt and shame and self-loathing and have a desire, uh, if you like, to fix everything and make everything safe. And that's really coming out of a broken image issue. Actually, God loves you just as you are. He's created you in his image. He's got a plan for you and a future for you. But that's where you are right now. I don't want to super spiritualize it away from us being able to do anything about it. It's great if you're emotionally sensitive. Equally, you have to be aware of yourself. If you were robust and prone to saying unpleasant things to people because you weren't empathetic, you'd need to do something about that too. But if we are sensitive... And if we, are, we have a propensity to fall into negative thinking and into anxiety, then we have to be aware of that. And that's seeing the trees, not the wood. It's saying, you know what, I'm here at home on my own, and I have that propensity, don't I, to hear that voice, that little noise. And that's going to make me worried. But actually, I, I recognise that in me. And that helps me to make a new appraisal about what might actually be happening here. Making a new appraisal is actually saying, God, what, what, how is this in your frame? And actually, could I be looking through uh, a broken lens at the word and not looking at your soaring eagle perspective. Let's think about it as it gets worse, uh, an anxiety disorder. Your brain's made up of lots of different sections. It's like a mansion with many different rooms. And uh, some rooms are fabulous and some rooms are not so fabulous. The Lord's dealt with the not so fabulous rooms. And there's rooms of function, there's rooms of memory. And uh, part of your brain, um, it, it deals very well with uh, with worry. It's this frontal lobe, this area at the front of your head. Now, the frontal lobe is the sort of sleeping policeman of your mind. But fortunately, you're not ruled by the sleeping policeman of your mind. Otherwise, you might be slightly stale and boring. There's another part of your brain which is like an excited teenager. And it's the size of a walnut, and it's called the amygdala. And the amygdala is, is right in the centre of your brain and uh, is very, very excitable. And it controls things like your fight or flight complex or reflex. So uh, if you're walking out of the seminar hall and there happened to be a raging bull running up the uh, walkway between that, that seminar down there and, and us up here, you would immediately kick into action. You wouldn't think, ah, a raging bull. Uh, I wonder if it's a real bull or a fake bull. <laughs> I wonder if those horns are actually sharp or if they're plastic. You would actually automatically move out the way. And then afterwards you might think about whether it was a real bull or if it was just Jonathan dressed up in a bull suit running at us. <laughs> That amygdala can get overstimulated. And that's what thriller movies and that's what horror movies do. They stimulate the amygdala. They, they present lots of opportunity for great and excited moments of imagining. But sometimes for those who are worried and stressed, that amygdala can be overworked. And actually CT scans have shown that little bean, that little nut in the head, gets actually red hot. Actually, it heats up. And you can see that on the scan, on the, on the split scanning. And then what happens to uh, the frontal lobe when the amygdala heats up is it slightly goes to sleep. So he was a policeman before going, hello, 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 what's that thought? That's not very rational, is it? Bonk that one on the head, that's not going anywhere. Instead, he's dozing in the corner. And then the amygdala still jumping around going, ha, ha, got loads of worries, ha, got loads and loads of worries. And all the worries start spilling out. And they're not under control anymore. And there isn't a great sense of balance between the amygdala and the frontal lobe. So, so if you like, your mind of balance and rationale is slightly out of sync. And that can happen, uh, and it can be exacerbated when we're exhausted. Have you noticed that? When you're really worried, you're often really overworked. You're feeling like you're at the end of your tether, and you're just not able to cope. And then things feel like they spiral out of control. Now, they don't just spiral uh, in one place. Spirals go somewhere. And in Minasol, we've, we, we always use this idea of a kind of corkscrew. Uh, if you do the Minasol course, this will become something you're very familiar with. It's, it's like a cycle of learning. And we begin to think, oh, bad thoughts, worried thoughts. Then we begin to feel more anxious. We're more stimulated. Our endocrine system is really tense. Then we think more thoughts, and we might start worrying that we're losing our minds. And then we get really worried, and we feel even more stimulated, and then we might break into having a panic attack, and then really think that men in white coats are going to appear any minute and, and take us off to a, a psychiatric unit. And then we're really, really worried. 
And then the whole uh, mind is exacerbated in part between that worry and the lack of rational uh, and the lack of kind of dampening. Now, you might find that you get to a point where there's just exhaustion and there's no more opportunity to worry. And you just think, I'm just going go to go to bed. I'm just going to lie down and, and I'm just going like, to let this pass. And then suddenly you feel better. It's odd that, isn't it? It's because you've given your mind a rest and things have dampened down. You haven't resolved anything. They've just dampened down. Now, we have to be godly in our perspective on anxiety and worry and work out what's true and what's real. And it says in the scriptures that, that the truth will set you free. And if you like, the Holy Spirit is the agent of truth in our minds and hearts to bring revelation to what is true. We spend an awful lot of our time worrying about things that will never happen. I met a young guy uh, recently who came to see me. He said, Will, you know, I think I'm struggling with the anxiety thing that you're talking about. He said, I keep going to see my doctor all the time. And I'm sure I've got something wrong with me. And, and every time I go and see him, he tells, you know, he does some tests. He tells me there's nothing wrong with me. And then I go away again. But then I soon worry that I've got something else wrong with me. I said, I said well, what are you worried about at the moment? And he said, oh, you know, I'm really worried I might have meningitis. I said, well, you look quite well to me. He said, yeah, but I, I, I met someone who had meningitis. And I, I think I might have got it from them. I said, well, that's interesting because, you know, you're sitting with me now, so you're telling me I might have meningitis too. So I started getting slightly worried there. But then I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to list how many different diseases you've had in the past three months. Let's go through that now. So I started listing off major diseases. Oh, you've had HIV AIDS. Have you had the bubonic plague? You know, might have you have swine flu? You know, what, what have you had? We listed nine different major illnesses that he thought he'd had at one time or other, and he hadn't had any of them. But it was only by seeing it objectively and understanding that actually this wasn't about him having illness. This was about him being an excessive, uh, an exacerbated warrior. That's why these things were coming to mind. So actually he had a perspective on it. So the next time he felt like he was going down with something, he didn't actually think he needed to go to the doctor if he had no symptoms. He needed to think, you know what, I think I'm in one of those worry spirals right now. I think I need to take a break and I need to wind down. I need to wind back the cycle and I need to start relaxing and allowing my amygdala to calm down and not be red hot anymore. And I need to wake up my frontal lobe and let it come back to life so it's really there and it's really balancing out my thought life. Now here's a little trick for you. Just tap your fingers on your forehead like this. This is a little trick that people use and when you're deeply stressed you can actually stimulate your frontal lobe. So when you're deeply stressed you tap your forehead like this just, just, just lightly and actually you're re-stimulating the frontal lobe and actually you can start to feel a bit better. Have you noticed how people rub their mouths like this when they're really, really worried? Do you do that? Or cover your face? Very interesting. It's very instinctual. But actually it comes through nursing complex when a baby feeds on the breast. It feels deeply comforted. And there's pressure sensors here which bring a sense of comfort uh, to, to, your own, to your brain as, you, as, you, as they're stimulated. So people automatically rub their face like this because it brings comfort. People are really nervous do this all the time. Because it's like being on the breast. It's a place of comfort. But you can actually feel better if you actually activate these senses and bring comfort. Now, you might think, well, that's not very godly, you know, doing all these funny things. But actually, you know, God created us with incredible senses that actually can bring a sense of comfort and peace. Now, that's not to say that our, our, um, our whole faith should be in that. It's just to say that these are things we can do to say, God, you know, I really feel like I need some, uh, some peace and I need to be able to relax out of this. If you do, uh, can you all do deep breathing? That's a really important technique, actually, to, to be diaphragmatic. And uh, it's another little tool you can use to breathe from here. Now, you might think breathing, that's not going to do, that's not going to solve my problem. I think I've got meningitis. Deep breathing's not going to do anything about it. But it's because you're approaching the whole situation from a tree line view and saying, you know what, I'm going to do this now. And I might actually feel better and different about doing this and actually relaxing. And I wonder if I can review it from another time. Hands up here if you go to bed worrying and you wake up in the morning, you feel slightly better. Do you ever have that little moment when you've just woken up and the world is perfect? And there's that peaceful moment. It lasts for about 10 seconds. You lie there and you're like, oh, the world is perfect. My duvet is perfect. And you open your eyes and you're just feeling like light, like you've not got a worry in the world. And then suddenly, wham! Wake up, you get in the shower and you start worrying. The reality is that actually nothing's changed. That moment of peace could be extended in your day. That moment of peace is what God wants for you. 
but our minds are alive to worry. They're alive to anxiety, and they can get hyped up to a place of being out of control. Now, in that endocrine cycle I talked about, the fight or flight, people actually find themselves automatically breaking into a fight or flight experience, which is panic attack. Anyone had panic attack here before? Quite a few people. Now, it's a very clever system. It's an incredible clever system. It's the system that keeps you from being run over by the bull, which is what we talked about earlier on. If you didn't have it, we'd die. You know when you're crossing the road and you actually you, you just put out your foot and then you sense that there's a car there, and immediately you jump back. That saved your life. That's the endocrine system in action. The trouble is when we're super hyped and super stressed and overburdened with worry, that endocrine system kicks in automatically at the wrong moments. So when you're really stressed and you're really hyped up, you can actually have a panic attack from nothing. And I remember when I was struggling with uh, the post-traumatic stress from the, from the bombings that I could, I could be, I remember uh, coming up to a shop assistant and I was just in the queue and I was buying something and I was just standing there and suddenly, boom, I had this huge panic attack. And I stood there and she didn't think anything was wrong with me. You know, she couldn't see it and I, you know, and I paid for my stuff, but I felt awful. And after that, I felt exhausted because actually what's happening in your system is it's very clever how all the hormones move out, but there's a, a recovery time as well. All panic attacks spike at the top, and then there's a recovery period. And afterwards, you feel very exhausted. But it's a sign that your endocrine system is right up there. It's, it's on hyper, hyper, super alert. And we have to work to actually say, can we work this down and actually affect worry and be deeply relaxed? If you're suffering from anxiety, then your stress system is working correctly, It's just not working appropriately. If you're a worrier, your system's working well. It's great. Congratulations. You've got a well-working system. It's good to know that, isn't it, that something's going right. Your system of worry is working excellently. Your problem-solving skills are fantastic. In fact, they're sharper than many other different subgroups of people. You're very good at working out problems, and when you're applied to other people's problems, you're brilliant. Applied to your own, though, you're not brilliant, because you're in a loop of trying to work out some things which actually don't need to be worked out. Now, Hear me clearly here. Some people have got very significant worries. Actually, they are seriously ill. They actually have got a family member who's, who's, who's critically ill, or they are in trouble financially, or their job is a big problem for them. I'm not talking about those issues. You see, those issues are issues that we need to be concerned about. Maybe we don't need to incessantly worry about them, but they are issues that would provoke normal levels of worry. What we're talking about here are the little worries of the day. What we're talking about here is a group of people who haven't got peace because their peace is constantly being stolen by small worries which actually catastrophized. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, catastrophization of those worries serves you well because actually they're, a, 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 they're like a, a safety blanket in your life. And this is, this is a big challenge that we need to think about. Imagine this. You've got two groups of people and their boat has sunk. They've both jumped into different life rafts, and they're in the life raft, and they're bobbing around on the ocean. Now, one group of people uh, are in one life raft, and, and they have a bailer, and the other group of people in the other life raft, they've got a bailer too. And quickly, both life rafts realize that their life rafts have been punctured, and, and they're going to sink. So on the left-hand side, they start bailing out their boat, and they're bailing it out, and the wind and the waves are rolling over them, and they're bailing it and bailing it, and they're going, yes, it's working. In the other boat, feeling slightly tired and lethargic because their boat has gone down. So they, they decided to throw the baler over the side. They didn't think they needed the extra ballast. And, and, and they're sitting there, and they're just uh, looking up at the sky, hoping beyond hope that actually someone's going to rescue them sooner or later. And at, and at that point, a big Sea King helicopter flies over the top, and the people in the boat who are looking up, going, they start waving for help, and the line comes down, and they all get rescued. But in the other boat, everyone's so busy bailing to keep the, float, uh, the boat afloat, they don't actually see the rescue helicopter. And the helicopter's hovering above them with a big wire saying, come on, come on. But they're bailing and they're bailing and they're keeping themselves afloat and they never get rescued. You know, there's a group of people in the church who are incessant warriors who are so busy bailing out their boat, they never get rescued. There's a verse in scripture that says, he who, choose, he who loses his life for my sake will find it, but he who tries to save his life will lose it. I think it's a brilliant, uh, brilliant verse to apply. It's not, of course, it, I'm applying it in a different way here, and, and I encourage you to apply it in the right way, as in we're leaving our life for Christ. But in terms of worry, sometimes we can be like that group of people who are bailing out our boat. We spend so long bailing out the boat of worry, that we fail to find real rescue. And it takes a moment of death, actually, of dying to worry, to actually find the life of real rescue. 
And so that is a, this is a real courageous challenge to you to try and actually step beyond what your worries mean. Now, I've been trying to do this for a long time, and I sometimes can say I'm successful, and sometimes I can say I'm not. I, I used to say that I would have five minutes of peace in a day, and that's probably when I just got up and I'd forgotten what I was worried about. And then the rest of my day would be filled with incessant worry. But I busied myself with all sorts of other things that meant actually work time was great, but the weekend was kind of bad. So as long as I was preoccupied with some other thing, it was good. But if I had lots of free time, ooh, then I'd get really worried because I had time to worry. Now, I can say that a couple of years on, in terms of dealing with worry, I'd say that 90% of my time is worry-free and 10% of my time is worrying about stuff. But the, the scales have changed because I, choose to die, I chose to die to my worries. And all I did was this. I determined to see the trees for the wood. And instead of actually diving into the worries that I was dealing with, I'd actually affect myself rather than those worries. So let's take a random worry that you might have. You've seen a pimple on your forehead, and you've decided that you might have the bubonic plague. So immediately you get terrified about bubonic plague, and you Google it straight away, because that's what everyone who's worried about illness does. So you've Googled the symptoms, and you've noticed that the symptoms begin with having a small boil on your forehead. Okay, the fact that bubonic plague is kind of obsolete doesn't really matter. So you see the boil, and you think, ah, bubonic plague, and then you start to get really, really worried. And you start Googling more symptoms, and, and you decide that your, your experience matches the symptoms. And then you're getting really, really worried. So they're actually engaging with then, how do I actually get well from bubonic plague, which is problematic because you kind of can't. So you're, you're kind of slightly, then you're really worried that you're going to die. So what you've done is you've dived into the tree level stuff, seeing a real problem and believing that you're part of it. But if you approach the situation again from another point, you might see the problem, say, ah, a pimple on my forehead. I would be really tempted to Google this symptom. Because that's what I would do as someone with a worry-type personality. But I'm not going to Google. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to believe that actually that boil might be something else. I'm going to make a new appraisal. I'm going to say that that isn't bubonic plague. That's just a spot on my forehead. So I'm making a new, more rational appraisal. Now, the thing about life is we can never be 100% sure. And it's amazing worries are brilliant people because they believe that somehow at the end of the rainbow they can find out 100% for certain that life's going to be safe and great and they're going to be fine as long as they can keep bailing out their boat. Everything's going to be okay. But the gospel should spelled R-I-S-K. Risk. That's the gospel. The gospel message is a message of risk. It's actually losing our life for his sake. And risk is something that worried people are always adverse to. They believe that they're at the centre of their universe. They believe that as long as they keep fixing and bailing, everything's going to be all right. The thing is, they never stop bailing and fixing to a point where there could be death. So they're never disproved from their belief that they're sorting it all out. Do you see what I mean? If you take steps to avert danger all the time, you never know that you wouldn't have been run over if you hadn't taken steps to avert danger. You haven't taken the risk to know that it's safe. Being a warrior is about being perfectly in control of your circumstances and trying to make everything safe. If we try and lose our life by stopping taking the steps that we think keep us afloat, we might sink. But it's a risk that we can afford to take if it actually means we truly find life. If you spend 90% of your day worrying, you're doing a brilliant job. Congratulations for bailing out your boat. Congratulations for making everything safe. We couldn't do it without you. Goodness, we're so thankful for what you do. If you weren't doing it, we would all die. That's what you're thinking. That's what you're thinking about your families and your friendships and your relationships and your churches. But that isn't what God's thinking. God's thinking, I'm the Alpha and I'm the Omega. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I did it all on the cross. I created it all in the beginning. And there you are. And you think you can control it all and sort it all out for me and make it safe for me. But I don't need your help. I'm God. Now, that's the reality for warriors. That's the reality. And trust isn't this sort of um, soft-centered kind of, don't worry about anything, but everything by prayer and petition, bring your request to God. It's not something you do to control the environment or the universe or God. It's something you do because you're actually saying, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to risk my life because I really trust you. And I trust you over the urge. Now, just get me right here. If you're a warrior, right now you'd be thinking, yeah, I really like this theology. This really works for me. How am I going to make it work for me? 
I mean, what do I need to do to make this really work for me? I've got to really, I don't think I can do this. You know, I mean, you know, it's just not, I can see this, this is not going to work for me. I, I don't like this theology. I think this is a rubbish seminar. <laughs> it's not going to work for me. It's rubbish. That's what we think because we're thinking about what we're doing. And we know there's one thing. And it's like this, this incredible smoker's urge. I think the urge to worry is stronger than heroin. I've never tried it. I'm just telling you that now, just in case you start worrying that I'm a drug user. <laughs> but, um, but I think the urge to worry is stronger than any drug. It's instinctual. It comes upon you out of the darkness. It feels like it's of absolute importance. If you think something seriously awry in your life and you start worrying about it, and I say, oh, please don't worry. You're going to go, yeah, that's really nice, but thanks. I'm actually worrying about this now. It's automatic. Now, we have to retrain our brains, and, and I'm not going to bore you with science, but, but our neurotransmission, that's the way our neurons move around our brain, a bit like a gramophone record. If you're a worrier, you've been playing Bach Sympathy Number no. 5 a thousand times. Round, 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 and round, and there's this deep groove on your gramophone player. You know, where the needle's cut down so deep, he doesn't play anything else. He doesn't play anything but Bach Symphony Number no. 5. But you want to sing a new song. That's what it says in the scripture, right? Sing a new song. So when, what, when what's automatic is challenged, you can begin to play, lift your needle with God's help, and place it in a diff- different place in your record. And you can begin to play a new song. Now, to start with, it goes, and it goes straight back into Bach Symphony Number no. 5. But you do it again. You try moving the needle again with a new appraisal. And it plays a little bit more. And then, and it's back in Bach Symphony number no. 5. But you're persistent because the gospel's all about taking hold of it, right? And actually going for it and being persistent. And it's all that two Thessalonian stuff of really going after it. And so you take the needle again. And you place it back on the record. And suddenly you start hearing a new song. Now, the great thing about your mind is after a while, Bach Symphony number no. 5, the groove starts kind of climbing back up again. So it just becomes a record that you sometimes play. It's not the groove of your life. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I'm liking this now. I'm liking this again. I'm feeling convinced. But it's about dying to it. It's actually recognizing that you've got a problem. And here's the rub, right, with change. Warriors, they like to think that they are worried about everything else, but they're sure about everything else too. They like to worry about everything, but they're absolutely certain that they're right to worry about it. You know, they can worry about everything. It's ironic, isn't it? You can worry about every different scenario. You're just sure you're right to worry about it, even though you don't know what the outcome is. If I ask you, you know, do you think you should be worrying about that? You say, yeah, of course I should be worrying about that. Well, why are you so sure? How do you know? How do you know that you're right to be worrying about it? Have you ever asked yourself, how do I know that I'm right with this? Am I entering to the wood, or am I seeing things from a tree-lined perspective? Now, it takes courage People don't get over serious addictions by just going, oh, I've, I've heard good teaching on it now, and I'm going to just leave this room, and it's all going to be absolutely fine. You know, they sell that Nicorette, nicotine, Captain Nicotine, whatever his name, Nicory Nicotine, whatever it is, all that stuff, gum, patches, things that you can blow on and look silly. You know, they sell all that because addiction's really difficult, right? They, sell, they make millions of pounds out of that because, because it's really hard to let go of something that's habitual. Many of you will have been worrying profusely since you were a small child. You've maybe got 40, 50, 60, 70 years of being automatic warriors. And that means that there's, there is hope for change, but change is going to need serious application. The great thing is that you're not bailing out your boat on your own. You're throwing away your bailer and saying, God, I've realised what I'm doing. Help me to change or change me through the power of your Holy Spirit. It's not you doing it on your own. Now, as with all addicts, and I'm using that, that term very loosely and lightly, because we are addicts, you know, we are addicted to worrying about things, and actually that means we're addicted to controlling things and making things safe. All addicts need to learn to take new risks and understand what life might be like aside from their addiction. But all addicts need a buddy or a partner to help them. And at Minus we really recommend joining together with someone else who's not a warrior. Don't do this in pairs. You know, oh yeah, oh no, oh no, not you as well. Oh no, and I thought I had it bad. And now I'm really worried for you. Do it with one of those other people, the hardback people we talked about earlier on, who are like, yeah, that's kind of not rational, is it? Do it with one of them. Be accountable over worry. Now, it's essential that you don't seek reassurance. And this is, this is where it all goes wrong. 
So you'll worry a person. So what you do is you go, it's not going to happen, is it? And they go, no, it's not going to happen. And then your mind goes, oh, I'm going to find another scenario now and then come back to you. Oh, what about this? No, it's not going to happen. Okay, that's not getting over worry. That's just being reassured. You don't want someone to reassure you. Risk is actually about not being sure. Risk is about actually living in doubt. There's a brilliant book. Alice McGrath has just written a brilliant theological book on, on doubt. I really recommend it to you. Just Google Alice McGrath doubt. But, the, but our faith is only faith in the presence of doubt. Warriors want certainty. I want to be absolutely sure that that's not going to happen. I want to be absolutely sure that I've done everything in my power to make sure that's not going to happen. That's living with certainty. God's called us to live in a world of doubt. Faith is actually only faith in the existence of doubt. You know, this floor feels pretty strong to me. But imagine this. Here I am, I'm walking along the floor, and I'm thinking this is a pretty solid floor. I've got, I've, I'm, I'm, I've got faith, guys, that I'm not going to fall through the floor right now. Now, is that really faith? No, it's not. It's certainty. I'm certain that I'm not going to fall through the floor. And that's what people who worry for long-term are looking for. They talk about faith, but actually what they want is certainty. And if I was walking on a rope bridge here, a bit like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, and there's lots of kind of slats which are rotten and hollow, and I'm walking along here, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I've got some doubts that this bridge is going to hold me, but I, I've got faith and I'm going to try and get across. That is faith in action, but it's only faith because there's the potential for disaster. Warriors love to eradicate the potential for disaster and talk about living in faith, but actually they're living in certainty. A gospel is something that we get hold of. It's a gospel of certainty in God's omnipotence, but it doesn't tell us that we're going to have a life free of hardships. Just read a bit of 2 Timothy and find out what Paul gets up to. You know, that's, that's, that's the gospel, is living in hardship and persecution and illness. You know, that's a real challenge there. The gospel isn't safe and we have to be willing to take risk, and risk overcomes the propensity to worry. And you'd think it'd be the other way around. If I took loads of risks, I'd be really worried. Actually, training ourselves like that gramophone record and moving our needle into different places and living in doubt and actually refusing to submit ourselves to try and seek for certainty has an effect on ourselves. It makes new appraisals in our brain, does something to our neurochemistry, which is really good, increases our serotonin levels, and makes us feel better and more confident about things, and then we can begin to find that we're able to move forward without persistently bowing down to our worries, and they're not over us, they're under us. And that's the whole thing that we're called to be more than conquerors. We're called to be more than conquerors, Conquerors aren't submitting uh, themselves to their enemy. They're actually walking over their enemy with confidence, even in the presence of doubt and fear and failure. Now, this is the key thing. Embrace failure. If you're trying to overcome anxiety, embrace failure. When you fail, it doesn't mean that you've just gone back to the beginning again. It means you've actually tried something new. Many people who've been worrying incessantly for years and years come and tell me and they say, Will, can you tell me all that stuff about worry again? I just really need to hear that again. And they go away. They think, oh, that's really nice. That's made me feel better. And then they start worrying straight away. They come back and say, Will, you know what? I started worrying again. Can you just tell me that thing about worry? What they haven't actually done is try to change anything. They've never experienced failure because they haven't stepped out of the the boat. They haven't stepped out of the life raft. If you want to have success against worry, you have to be prepared to fail. But failure, when you're trying to work against worry, doesn't actually mean that you failed. It means that you've succeeded because you've tried. This is the reality. If you never worried again, you'd be dead. Will there be circumstances in your life that you should worry about in the future? Yes. That's the thing about worry. You never want to be completely worry-free. We're never going to be completely worry-free until we enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the truth. You know, worry isn't something we can do without. Worry is something we need, but we need it in appropriate measure. And as I said earlier, your endocrine system, your worry system is working, is working very well. Congratulations. It's just working far too much to be healthy. And like anything that we have far too much of, it's not good for us. Seeing it for what it is, is really, really essential. I want to explain this corkscrew thing to you in A, B and C, so you really get this. 
A's are actions. They're like triggers for worry, and they may be thoughts. Ninety percent of our worries are initiated not by something that's actually happened. They're initiated by a thought. I sometimes call these things spikes. So A is like a spike. Now, you're watching Coronation Street, and someone on Coronation Street is having a brain tumour. And uh, then you read the next day in the newspaper something about brain tumours. And you know what? Then you just had this tension headache, and it just kind of came on. And then you started worrying, maybe I've got a brain tumour. Now, statistics show us that, that, uh, that, that uh, GP referrals, when Coronation Street has someone who's very ill, uh, re- relate, actually directly statistically relate, to the issues that's being faced up by the soap. So suddenly, loads of people go to the doctor and say, I think I might have a brain tumour. And so the spike actually initiated a worry which brought on the concern. So that's the A. There's the actions. The Bs are the beliefs, the beliefs that we have, the beliefs that we have surrounding those actions. So those beliefs that we hold are the things we bring to the table right now. And they may be things like, bad things always happen to people like me. And if I don't work really hard to control the world, then the world's going to control me. And actually, I'm a bad person, and I need to worry about these things, otherwise, you know, everyone's going to find out. Or, I've done X, Y in my life, and therefore, you know, I need to be particularly cautious that I really change. And my pastor's told me, you know, I need to be better at discipleship, and, and I've got to work harder to make sure I'm really living the Christian life. B is a belief that we bring to the table, so that when something comes up as an A, we immediately go, ah, I'm going to jump on that, I'm going to get hold of that, I'm going to squeeze that really tightly and try and wrestle it to death. And the Bs can be catastrophic. They can be things like, I'm going to die, I'm going mad, I'm ugly, I'm fat, I'm worthless. They can be statements about ourselves responding to the A that we've just seen. And then there's the C, and the C's are the consequences. And the consequences of viewing A through the Bs are the C's. So you see the spike, the A, the action, through the B, the belief, and the consequences are the C's. They're the response to that. Our clever bodies smelling danger, and they res- it responds to it like lightning. And then we might have the tension headaches, the shaky limbs, the hot and cold sweats, uh, the panic attacks, the incessant worry, the sleeplessness, all because of a stress chemical in our bodies called cortisol, which is released at times like these. And the frightening cycle uh, goes on and on and on, uh, and down and down and down. Now... I've said an awful lot. Some of it will kind of um, stay with your hope. Some of it will hopefully fall to the ground and die. That's always a good thing. It's important that uh, not everything um, is good for you, and therefore you must only receive what's good for you uh, in the spirit. The deeper you've got in that cycle of anxiety, the more gnats you'll have. Gnats, or ants, depending on how you think about them. Gnats are negative automatic thoughts. Or ants are automatic negative thoughts. What we find is the product of people who are worrying is that their identity is actually shaped by the worry. Their identity is actually damaged by the amount of worry and the amount of negativity that they have, often about themselves. And and when we work with people with body dysmorphic disorder or when we work with people with anorexia or bulimia, we actually see that very concretely relative to their persona, their visual image of themselves. But equally with people with anxiety disorders and with depression, they begin to spin negative consequences about themselves because of the worries that they hold and because of the beliefs that they hold around themselves. Three steps that we want to we really engage with uh, to move out of those vicious cycles. The first step is to realise that worrying will not get us anywhere in most circumstances. Worry doesn't provide us with any functionality. Only action can change something. Worry doesn't actually perform a function, and it deepens the spiral. The second step is realising that the answer is not worrying less or more, but changing the whole way that we deal with uncertainty and doubt. I don't want you to worry less. I want you to look at worry in a completely different perspective. I want you to frame worry completely differently. I want you to to have a dashboard in your mind, and, and when the red light of worry starts pulsating, and you're going, beep, 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 stop, 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 you go, ah, the worry light has gone off. When you're driving your car and that stop light starts flashing and the, the temperature gauge is up in the red and the, the fuel gauge is right down in the, in, in the red the other way, you know, do you just carry on? Do you just continue driving and hope for the best? Or do you pull over and do something about it? When you start worrying, it's not the worries that are important. It's the fact that you're worrying that's important. It's a sign on your dashboard that something's going wrong, that you need to regroup. And you need to change. 
And the third step is getting really specific and getting really active. Worry is like a pale shade of grey. You get it in Farrow and Ball. You know, and it's painted on the walls, and you're not quite sure whether it's magnolia or whether it's grey or whether it's drainpipe grey or is it lead grey. You go into Farrow and Ball, and you'll see what I mean. It's really kind of misty and unquantifiable. And sometimes we're just worrying about nothing. We're worrying about nothing, but it's so powerful, we're just quite happy to be content worrying about nothing for a long period of time. We've got to get specific and ask specific questions about what the worry is and what function it's playing in our lives. Within the subconscious stream of the human mind, there are all sorts of odd, violent, sexual, religious and frightening thoughts that occur. 60,000 thoughts we have approximately in a day and only about 18,000 of those are of value or of useful thoughts. All sorts of stuff going on in our mind that we don't need to pay attention to. But we need to be very real about what are the real things that we need to deal with and what's the rubbish that we can let pass through our minds. Be very specific about your worry and actually let the light of Christ shine on what isn't necessary and show you what really is necessary to think about. I want you to imagine that you're like on, you can, you can imagine that you're stand, standing on this, it's a little bit angular, so you might be worried that you might slide off, but imagine you're standing on this lectern right now, and there are a stream of balloons coming up from underneath. Now, there are yellow balloons, and they're coming up, and there are also black balloons. Now, what I want you to do in your day is to stand on this little angular plinth and let the black and the yellow balloons just come up. Now, the yellow balloons are good and useful thoughts, but amongst every four or five, there's also a black balloon. And I want you to let that black balloon just float by. Don't do anything. Just let it float by. When you've got a negative thought, what you tend to do is this. You're up here, and the balloons are coming up. And the, oh, the, the balloons are coming up from either side, and, and they're floating past you. And you go, oh, there's a black balloon. Ah, oh, there's a black balloon. Oh, there's another black balloon. I've got to hold on to these balloons and do something about them. The thing is, what we do is we end up with a handful of different worries. And we've let all the good things that God's got for us, all the yellow balloons, all the active and all the healthy things we need to think about, float past us because our hands are so full of different black balloons. As worries, we need to actually allow the black balloons to float by. Just watch them in your mind as if they've come across a screensaver and go, oh, that's a really interesting negative thought. If I was worrying right now, I could worry about that. But I've decided just to watch that go past. If you can wait 15 minutes after you've had a spike, one of those A thoughts, the likelihood is you'll actually be able to let that spike pass you by. And I want you to go away and experiment with actually watching a negative thought that would always trigger a worry to you float across your screensaver and time it. Right, it's seven minutes to four right now. I'm not going to worry about this for 15 minutes. Then ask yourself, hmm, do I want to go back and worry about that later? It's amazing how many times you'll go, yeah, I don't think I need to think about that. I think that was just one of those random negative black balloons that we'll talk about. You need to actually actively engage with worry in that way. The other tool I want you to try at home is a worry capsule. Every morning, you've got seven minutes, or evening, you've got seven minutes, and I want you to worry as much as you possibly can. <laughs> right? I want you to time it on the clock, but I want you to really get down dirty with worry. Go for it. Really work hard. Worry, 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 worry. Now, every time you've had a negative thought, you've seen one of those black balloons pass you in the day, just note it down and say, yeah, I'm going to worry about that at 10 past 6. Okay? Just try it. I'm going to worry about that at 10 past 6. I'm going to do my seven minutes of worry, then I'll deal with it then. Now, the thing about your brain is it's very clever, so it'll hold you accountable. You must do the seven minutes of worry. It doesn't work if you don't, because your brain quickly knows that you're tricking it, because it's your brain, and you've told it that, if you see what I mean. Try the worry. It's called a worry capsule. It's a really good tool to try and use. If you do that every day for seven minutes, just take all your worries. You can list them down, if you like, if you want to write things down so you don't forget your worries. Then get to your worry, you know, sit in your worry comfortable chair, and get ready for your seven minutes of real worry. And worry, 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 worry. But make sure that after seven minutes you stop. Stop worrying because you've run out of time. And then the next day you can do your worry capsule again. Now what you'll find happens is an awful lot of the dross that you you caught in the day that you'd normally worry about, actually you look at again and you really can't worry about it because you're looking at it through a new rational lens. So you've created all of this new headspace in the day and your brain suddenly learns how to filter the good stuff from the bad. Now, there might be stuff in your worry capsule you need to worry about. 
but it's okay as long as you contain it within your time frame. Do something new. Change something. It'll be exciting and good for you, and you'll enjoy it. And you'll get to grips with worry in a really exciting and active way and begin to go, hey, you know what? I worried for 14 minutes today. Two worry capsules are seven minutes. You might start off and go, you know what? I'm going to do four worry capsules for this first week. Seven minutes, seven minutes, seven minutes, and seven minutes during the day. But then I'm going to cut it down to just two. And then I'm going to cut it down to one. And then I'm going to see where I'm going from there. Be active. Do it differently. The key thing isn't what you're doing. The fact is that you're doing something. Something will change a habit of a lifetime. You get the message. It's not easy, but there's a huge difference between just debilitating anxiety, which is habitual, and stepping into a new framework and saying, I can do it differently. I can see the trees, not the wood. I'm going to respond in a new way and allow God to join me as he changes and transforms me for my glory, for his glory. And I'm going to have 90% of my day airspace, worry-free, just like when I woke up and the duvet was good and the bed was good and I could deal with life. And then 10%, you know, I can deal with that. That's a big change from what I used to do. And that's good. That's what God wants for us. Great. I want to open the floor for any questions. I think we're, we're running out of time. I've got four minutes from some questions from the floor. Thank you all for listening. <coughs> you can, you know, don't, don't clap yet because I haven't finished. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, the Minus Soul course is a six-week introduction to um, emotional and mental health. And we, do, we deal with worry spirals. We, we deal with what we call safety behaviours, like uh, the bailing out the boat I talked about a bit earlier on. Thank you. Uh, goodbye. God bless you. Um, and, um, and we deal with all sorts of really practical issues. But, but the, worry, the Minus Soul course helps you look at you know, who was I, what damages my beliefs, who was I, who am I now, and who am I becoming. And it's, an, it's a way of looking at change and transformation. And uh, I really recommend it to you. There's a promo online. We're piloting it the second time in about 30 churches or something like that uh, at the moment. And there's a final, we're doing the final production over the summer. So there's more information and resources online at uh, www.mindandsoul.info. Any other questions we've got from the floor? A couple of others. Um, significance in the seven minutes is that it, it, it's enough time to really focus in and do some damage to your, yourself in terms of facing up to your worries, but it's not long enough for you to get bored and actually disengage from the process. If I say, I mean, I've, I've used 15 minutes before, and I think one of the dangers of that is that people actually don't stick to the time frame because they do six or seven minutes and then they start feeling quite bored and they go off and do something else. It's really important for your brain that you actually contain the time and there's a clear start point and a clear end point. That's what makes it a capsule. So that's why I've, I've got that. But you could extend it or reduce it depending on how incessant your worries are and how intensely you're feeling at that time. I would say, though, you need to choose your time frame and stick to your time frame because as much as entering the capsule is important, exiting it at the right time is also really important. That's the discipline of learning to let go and actually trust in the face of doubt. That's why it's, that's the second half of the exercise. Any others? One more? They're just about to kick me up. I feel their presence behind me. How can you tell what is reality and what is not reality if you've got this damaged lens? Well, I think the key thing is to understand that we've all got the damaged lens, okay? And discernment, you know, if, if obviously if people are in a psychotic state, they often can't tell the difference between reality and, and unreality. But if you're in a neurotic stage, a state, we're very good at actually discerning what is actually real and true. And most worriers have a, a strong sense that they shouldn't be worrying about it. And they often will say to me, oh, I know this is stupid, but... Now, most people, th those are the sort of worries we're really dealing with here. It's, it's that if you were saying this to someone, would you be embarrassed? Or would you think you're wasting their time? Or more importantly, if you went to the doctor and booked an appointment and sat down and said, doctor, I'm really worried about X... Would he press the button on, you know, Britain's Got Talent? You know, please leave the room and don't waste my time. They're the worries that we all have. We kind of know, actually, deep down, there's something guttural that says, yeah, this really isn't going to happen, or this is really pointless. And yet we still engage in worry. That's why it's problematic. As I said, there's a difference between those and very real worries. And again, the Holy Spirit will give you discernment uh, according to his will and calling. Right, can, can I just say that the Mind Control Course... It's actually designed to be run within the church. And the whole idea is actually that it can be run by the church to actually have, say, 10 or, or so church members. 
do it at the same time and be, be part of a group actually undertaking it. In that sense, it's similar in some ways to, say, an alpha course or that sort of thing. It's not something we're putting on for you to come to and actually do a course which we run. It's a course which we produce, which we can send out to the churches, for the churches to run it for their congregations and to actually get the message out into the church and into the community. That's the whole idea of the Mind and Soul course. So do come down to our stand in, in the Premier Pavilion in the Mind and Soul Zone. We've got actually copies of both of the manuals there, sample copies. And also if you want to find out a bit more about whether or not you want to, want, want to be part of the pilot. I'd like to actually say thank you to all. He's run away. But I really do think we need to give him a round of applause. Thank you, Will.